Well, good morning, Evergreen. It's glad to see you guys this morning. Glad this many of you are able to make it out. I wasn't sure with the weather how many people would be in church this morning, so it's actually fuller than I thought it would be. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on who you are, I don't have any dad jokes to start this sermon. So, um, but I know that if you came here for my humor, we might be empty. So, but anyways, my name is Stephen, and I just want to give you a warm welcome as uh, we go through scripture this morning. It's, it's a real pleasure, and I consider it an honor and a privilege. Uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, we just began our journey through the Gospel of Luke. And if you missed last week, I encourage you to listen to last week's sermon. Um, I know a lot of pastors say this, please listen to our sermon last week. I'm not trying to up my views on YouTube or on our website, but it's, I think it's important as we go through the Gospel of Luke that we have some idea of where we're going, kind of where we're headed, just to give a bit of context. Um, you know, last week I kind of explored some, just some bigger themes in the Gospel. I talked about dating, genre, authorship, uh, those things. And uh, I do want to be clear as we go forward. I know it can be a bit confusing when talking about the Gospel of Luke because the author is Luke. And so sometimes I might say something that might confuse you a little bit. I'll try to be clear in my language when I'm talking about Luke the writer versus the actual book of Luke. Um, have you ever met someone and they didn't turn out how, how you thought they would be? You know, sometimes when we meet someone for the first time, we have this first impression of who we think they are, what they're about, and they kind of they challenge that. And it's not that they're secretly trying to hide who they were. It's just our first impression, the way that we judge someone, was wrong. I remember uh, during COVID, I met a friend, and his name was Carl, back in Alberta. And for him, this was the exact case. I had a first impression of him that wasn't true. I had a missionary friend who was, uh, during COVID, had to come back from China to be in Canada. And so he was working uh, with this guy named Carl. And my, my missionary friend said, Stephen, I know you want to be working in Edmonton. I was dating Yvette at the time, so I wanted to be closer to her, obviously. And so he said, why don't you come down? I have some work for you. You can probably work for this guy named Carl. So I'm like, okay, that sounds like a good idea. So I get this address to go meet Carl. And so I drive up to Edmonton, which is Carl's working, but he's working kind of on the outskirts of Edmonton in this construction yard, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I'm kind of, as I'm driving in, like, oh, is this legitimate? Like, this is in the middle of nowhere, taking some back roads to get here. And I go into this yard, and there's all these construction trailers in there. And, and, uh, and I'm kind of thinking, this looks kind of sketchy. Is this, is this legitimate, right? And, and uh, as I go to meet him, I was like, this guy looks like a bit of a redneck, no offense. And I'm from Alberta, so I kind of feel like I can say that, but that's what I thought. This guy's a bit of a redneck. And so what happened was, you know, I talked with him, spent some time with him, decided that I would work with him. The, the pay was good, and I just wanted to see, well, maybe this is, perhaps this, this is actually good. And it turns out it was legal and it was legitimate. But, um, but over time, I began to build this relationship with Carl that totally challenged my kind of judgments of him, my first impressions of him. And uh, through, first of all, through my relationship with Carl, I realized that he's not an Albertan redneck at all. He's actually French-Canadian. Big difference. <laughs> so, you know? But the thing is, when Carl would speak, he had no accent at all. He didn't come like, he just spoke English like any other Albertan would. And so it was kind of surprising. But then what surprised me further is I get to know Carl. Carl not only knows French, he knows seven other languages. This guy is like kind of like amazing with languages. And as I get to know him, uh, he shares like he was in the military and deep levels of the military. He also served in like deep levels of law enforcement, undercover and things like that. And so he kind of had this, this life that I had no idea about that I kind of just assumed who he was. And the thing is, 
Carl wasn't the guy who told these things freely. Like, he wasn't telling me these things just like out of nowhere trying to brag. It was because of what happened, actually, is that we would go on trips together for work. You know, and the funny thing was I was trying to get away from Grand Prairie, but what happened is we often had, would have contracts in Grand Prairie. So we'd have to, I'd have to go back with Carl. We'd be driving up in the car for five hours, and as you know, when you're in the five hours together with someone, you just you talk about life. And so I learned some really things that challenged my perceptions, my judgments of who he was. You know, and through this time, I found out, you know, like he is a remarkable person, someone I could learn a lot, a lot of things from. He's gone through a lot of life, seen things that I will never see in his line of work. And I remember kind of wondering, like, what new thing will I learn about Carl this week? Because Carl didn't, like, randomly share. Just sometimes over conversation, he would just make a small comment or something. And he'd be like, oh, like, let me, let me dig into that. See, like, what's the story? Why did he make that comment? Because that's just someone with his life experience sees things a lot differently than I would. And I wonder if we come with that same attitude towards Jesus. That we become hungry and that we don't just assume that we know who Jesus is, but that actually as we dig into Luke, that we want to discover more about Jesus. Will we be curious about Jesus or will we just assume that we know him? I'm not going to go say the full statement, but you know what they say about when we assume. Um, you know, like it's sometimes we can make big mistakes when we just assume that we know who Jesus is. And, you know, like I know that I've done that all the time. Sometimes I just assume, oh, Jesus would think that or do this and then read the scriptures like, oh, maybe Jesus doesn't actually agree with what I think. But anyways, that's, I want to pray as we get into the text this morning. Lord, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for Evergreen and these people here. I thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord. We just welcome you. Lord, make the gospel come alive to us. Know our hearts, expose us, expose our sin, renew us, redeem us, recreate us, make us into your image. Lord, as we go through Luke, help us to see you more clearly. Help us to be your disciples, to be people of your kingdom. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So last week I talked about a lot of different things, kind of, you know, like the fine print. I talked about, you know, if we're going to take medicine, you know, it's good to read the fine print on the medicine bottle because sometimes you don't know what it's actually going to do to you or what may do to you. And I realized I didn't even talk about the big print, probably the most important thing. The gospel. What does the gospel actually mean? Have you ever been confused by a word, um, thinking that it meant something? This happens all the time with me and Yvette. Yvette is like someone who knows words really well. She's you know, a writer and does lots of editing. So sometimes I'll say a word. She's like, well, that's not exactly what it means. So there's been more than a few times I've had to be corrected by Yvette. <laughs> and so it's been a humbling experience to realize, oh, maybe I'm using that word wrong. Um, but to make it even maybe more difficult, have any of you heard of contronyms? Probably not. I didn't hear about them until this week until I was doing research for my sermon. So a contronym is a word that changes meaning based on the context. So it can mean the exact opposite thing depending on the context. So for example, I'm sure you've all heard the word buckle up or buckle. What does that mean? You know, when you get into a car, your parents say, buckle up, kids. So you buckle, you put on the buckle, and what is that supposed to do? It's supposed to keep you secure. But what happens if you're walking and your knees buckle or a frame on a house buckles, it breaks. So the word buckle actually can have opposite meaning depending on the way we use the word. And I think sometimes when it comes, sorry if I can flip my page, when it comes to Jesus and the gospel, sometimes we can misunderstand. We can maybe misframe it or think about it in a wrong way. And I want to kind of dig in to what does the word gospel mean? What does it mean for us? 
when Luke is writing, when Luke is writing and says this is the gospel of the Lord, what does this actually mean? Now, some of you may know this information, but I thought this is probably one of the most important things I can talk about. If, there's, if you don't even like, want to listen to my sermon, I understand, but listen to this part. You know, like, this is the most important part. That, like, If you were to like, take anything home today, this, to me, I think is at the heart of what I want to get at. So we've all heard the word gospel, and most of us know it means in its simplest basic terms, good news, which is true. Gospel at its base level just means good news, but it comes from the Greek word euangelion. And if you asked me what scripture or the gospel meant to me 15 years ago, I might say something like this. Jesus died for my sins, paid the price so that I can go to heaven. And maybe you might say something like that too, maybe you don't. But I want to say there's lots of elements of truth in this statement, but in some ways it leads to a reductive or a minimal view of what the gospel is. It can distort actually how we see Jesus and his mission. And let me say again that if we think the gospel is primarily about Jesus paying my sins, I can go to heaven, this will distort how we see Jesus and his kingdom. It's true, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection does allow us to be one with the Father. His death does cleanse us from sin. But this misunderstanding of the gospel helps us, or I shouldn't say helps us, but it makes us miss out on the breadth and depth of Jesus. And it puts the focus on us on instead of God. So I want to take a step back into the ancient world just for a moment to try to understand the word gospel and to frame it in the ancient world. When Jewish people and the Romans and Gentiles heard the word gospel, there was a certain context that they thought of it in. They lived in a different time than we do. This word was seen in a different light. In the Roman world, we have in the first century BC, so a, life, a century before Jesus, we have an inscription called the Preen Inscription from Asia Minor. Asia Minor is in Turkey, if you're wondering. And in this Turkey, sorry, not in this Turkey, in this inscription, the word gospel is used. And what does this gospel say? It praises Emperor Augustus. And it praises him, this gospel message of the Emperor Augustus is that he is savior for ending wars and bringing peace to the empire. That is his gospel. Another gospel message hails Caesar's birth, not just as a birth of a human birth, but of the birth of a god. This was the Roman gospel. And when Caesar would have a birthday, he would send forth a gospel message proclaiming it's his birthday, time to celebrate. And when there would be a victory from Rome, when they would crush an enemy, it would be good news, gospel proclaimed for Caesar. The word gospel in the Roman context had a very particular meaning. It was related to Caesar, to his rule, to his kingdom, to his dominion. When he crushed another group, it was a gospel, good news. But if you're not on the side of Rome, gospel is not very good, is it, if it's from Caesar? The term gospel for a Jewish person would have been informed by this Roman context. They would have heard of Caesar but they also would be reminded of the Old Testament. They'd be reminded of the scriptures that they would read in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the ancient Greek version of the Old Testament because the Jews spoke Greek. It's a Greek translation that was made in the third century. They would have this word euangelion, this Greek word. And when it was used, it would refer to a battle being won very much like Caesar, but it'd also be used in Isaiah, pointing towards the Messiah to come, someone who would bring God's rule, someone who would free them. 
the Messiah to them was someone who would be in the line of King David, someone who'd be anointed to bring God's rule. So when they heard the word gospel, they would have thought of Caesar, but they would also thought of the promised Messiah. So when a Jew heard this term, there could be a whole bunch of things going on in their mind. And I should note that Luke, in his gospel, never uses uh, the noun form for gospel, but he always uses the verb form, which means to proclaim the gospel, to preach the gospel, to tell the gospel. And wouldn't you know, one of the first times that Luke uses the gospel is in Luke 2.10. Luke 2.10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Luke is telling a different story than Caesar is. He's doing a different counterclaim. When Luke is writing the gospel story, he's saying there is someone other than Caesar in charge. There is someone else who has come. There is a new sheriff in town, and that he is Lord, Lord over all, Lord over the darkness, Lord over Satan, that he is enthroned, that he is king forever. The gospel is good news that Jesus is king, and this means that Caesar was not, that he was a false god. When we read the Gospels, they are primarily about Jesus, his kingship, his dominion, his reign, his rule, his power and victory over the kingdom of darkness. The Gospel, again, is about his kingship, his dominion, his rule, his victory over the darkness. This is what the Gospels are primarily concerned about. Often in church, we made the Gospel all about us, how Jesus saves us and rescues us, which I want to say is true. But the object of the Gospels first is Jesus and his kingdom and his rule. This is what the Gospels are first and primarily about. It's within his rule and reign that he makes it available to us, that he wants to redeem us and renew us. The Gospel is about Jesus first, then us second. The Gospel is about Jesus being king. And I think this is good news. Why? Because the way that Jesus does things is opposite to the ways of the world. His kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, an upside-down rule. He subverts and flips the paradigms, the hierarchies of the days on its head. He invites all regardless of status. It's not just the rich, but it's the poor, it's the marginalized, it's the weak. It's a kingdom of love and sacrifice rather than ruling through military power. It's a kingdom of laying one's down life instead of taking others' lives. It's a kingdom of serving rather than seeking to be served. It's a kingdom of being humble rather than seeking position. It's a kingdom that seeks the good of others. It's a kingdom that is ruled by God rather than sin and darkness. It's a kingdom of holiness rather than sin. A kingdom of light rather than darkness. It's a kingdom that calls all to it. It's not limited to just one people group or class. My hope is that as we go through the Gospel of Luke, we will discover the good news of his kingdom and his kingship and his victory, which is for us. That we will see him more clearly. Luke offers a different gospel than the gospels of that day of Caesar. He offers us good news, not just for the rich, not just for the Jew, but for all people. This is a good news gospel for everyone. Jesus is king. It's not a kingdom run by politicians or bureaucrats, thank goodness, but by the king of kings. A kingdom that flips all the ways of the world on its head. Luke invites us to discover what the victory, the reign, and the kingdom of Jesus looks like. Let's dive in. 
So we'll be continuing in Luke 2, 41 to 52. So if you have a Bible or phone app or you want to follow up on ahead, that's fine to do. We're going to be uh, going through uh, Luke. And uh, since we just passed through um, Advent, we're going to be skipping the infancy narratives as we kind of looked over that during December. So we're going to be continuing on when Jesus was just a young boy. Luke 2, 41 to 52. Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went and took a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with the people. Amen. I'm not sure about you, but it it can be easy to actually miss the energy in this passage. Verse 41 gives us the setting for where the story is taking place. It's taking place in Jerusalem during the Passover festival. Now, we celebrate Christmas and Easter, but I think we'd have no idea what it'd be like to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem in the ancient world. Jerusalem was a central city for the Jews. It was a city that was elevated on two ridges. It was kind of a very easy position to defend. You had the Judean, I believe it, mountains to the west and the desert to the east. And it's the city that had the spring in it where people would drink from. You also had, it's the city of David where the monarchs ruled from David and the kings of Judah. And it was thought that Jerusalem would be the place where the Messiah would come, where he might be born. And it was the city where the temple of God was. The temple was the center for worship, the nexus for where Israel gained their identity. They came there to worship Yahweh. This was central to who they were. Also, during these times, these feasts, things would get a bit crazy. I'm not sure if you've heard of zealots, but zealots during these times would like stir the people up and like, let's rebel against Rome. And so it would be kind of this, kind of like this be fever pitch of things going on. You also had assassins that would infiltrate the city called Sicarii. And they would go in there and they'd try to kill Roman officials during these times because the population of the city would double. So you can imagine trying to keep tabs on everyone was well nigh impossible. And so Josephus notes actually that the Romans, they would bring in a whole bunch of guards, a whole bunch of soldiers because they needed to lock down the city because things just got dangerous. So can you imagine being a young boy Jesus maybe and heading to the city of Jerusalem? There probably would have been a lot of sense of adventure, a sense of like, man, I wonder what's going to happen this time. I'm not sure what was in Jesus's head, but I think there's maybe a sense of excitement of going to Jerusalem during the feasts. So can you imagine being this young boy wondering what's going to happen next. Now, we're not sure if this is Jesus' first time. Perhaps it is his first time. We're not sure. But what we do know, that if you're a Jewish man in that society, going 
to the temple, the three feasts was kind of something that was expected of you. If you were a good Jewish man, you would go to the three feasts during the year, Feast of Tabernacle, Passover, and Pentecost. But what's interesting here is that Jesus' family is going every year. It shows that they're a devout family, maybe more devout than those around him. And now I think it's probably funny. This is probably the most stressful verse, I think, for anyone here who is a parent. Verse 20, 43 to 45. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it, assuming he was traveling in the party that went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. I'm sure for some of you parents just reading that, probably gets your heart pumping a little bit. Like if you're like, you're traveling somewhere and you're like, where's my son? You know, like you're probably going to go a bit crazy. I think the first point I want to talk about is Jesus is not predictable. He's not predictable. It might be easy to assume, man, Jesus' parents really dropped the ball. Like, Mary, you forgot God. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, come on, like, you need to focus here, Mary. Get on the ball. But we have to remember that families in the ancient world operated differently than ours do today. We have the nuclear family, but in the ancient world, families were seen as much bigger. You would go with cousins and you would be with kind of the people in your town when you would go to feasts. It's quite common that when you would go to Passover or something like that, you would travel with a group of cousins and family from your town because it was unsafe to travel the roads alone. There was bandits. And kind of you're, it's like you just became one big family as you traveled. And so it's not kind of, it's not actually really Mary and Joseph's fault. They just assumed. Now, maybe they shouldn't have assumed, but I mean, this is very common for how they, they related. And actually it's the Greek word that's used for caravan, synodia, is also can be used to mean family, which is interesting. So you see this idea of like this traveling group actually being seen as a family. But what do Mary and Joseph do like any responsible parent? Well, they go searching for Jesus like any parent should. I wonder, when I think about Mary and Joseph, do we search for Jesus like they did? Hopefully we're not anxious, but in this text, this word search or look, it's the same Greek word there, comes up four or five times. This idea of them searching for Jesus. Maybe we think we have Jesus pegged. What he would think maybe about a particular issue. When he might think that he's on our side. We have to be careful about making assumptions about Jesus as we go through the Gospel of Luke. Are we willing to discover him afresh? I'm sure Mary and Joseph were scared, and once they found him, they were probably like, whew, like, you know, a deep breath of relief, and they probably weren't going to let him out of their sight for the next year. I'm sure, like, eyes on Jesus, eyes on Jesus, make sure we don't lose him. But would we have eyes on Jesus as we go through the Gospel of Luke? Maybe we assume Jesus is with us, Perhaps you don't. I don't mean to be negative or judgmental as a pastor, but let me suggest, sometimes I've heard many people say, God is calling me to this, or calling me to this ministry, or I've heard pastors say, God is calling our church to do this for this year, or businessmen saying, you know, God is calling me to this business. And to be honest, sometimes I wonder if we too easily use God to justify him as a means to an end. I'm not saying God doesn't call people. I do believe he does, but we have to be very careful when we use God because sometimes he can too easily fit into our agenda, whether it's a personal agenda, a political one, a business one, when Jesus may want us to do something else, or maybe he's not necessarily on board with what we're doing. We have to be careful when we make assumptions about what Jesus is going to do or not. I grew up in the charismatic movement, and often people would sometimes claim, you know, like God wants to heal you, and then sometimes that person would die from cancer, 
then what happens? The whole family's in doubt about God because people have said that God's going to heal that person. So we have to be very careful when we claim the name of God to something that's going on. To be very careful when we use his name that this is something he actually desires. Jesus, I believe, wants us to know him afresh this morning. Jesus' parents, I believe, needed to see Jesus in a fresh light. See, Jesus is only 12, but he was becoming a man. In the Jewish culture, 13 was the coming of age. So Jesus now, I'm sure his parents, you know, like it's hard not to see your son as your son, but like it's hard to let your children grow up. Like even our son is only, you know, like two months old, but already Yvette's like, I can't, it'll be so hard when he grows up and when he becomes a man. Like Yvette is even, you know, like mourning that already, even though he's only two months old, you know. But sometimes we have to let go of our views of who we think Jesus is sometimes. I think second point is Jesus is his father's son. He's his father's son. Verse 46. After three days, they found him, found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. This point may seem redundant, but I think Luke is crafting this narrative. He's saying Jesus is amongst the most educated scholars and teachers of the temple, and he's astounding them. This 12-year-old is conversing with them. Could you imagine? It'd be like if a 12-year-old went into NASA and started talking to them about astrophysics and like engineering and proposing solutions and new ideas, and kind of all these people are like, what's going on? Who is this crazy, amazing kid? What's even shocking is that Jesus is doing this in the temple, the central location for the Jews. Jerusalem was the central city, and the temple was the central place for them. It's the literal heartbeat of the ancient Jewish people. And here, Jesus is at the center, the most learned at age 12. They do not know it now. They, sorry, they did not know it yet, but Jesus was the very center of Israel itself. Luke presents a picture of a young boy, Jesus, who's versed in the Jewish scriptures, a boy who's great understanding and depth. It was thought that the king of Israel, the king that would come, the Davidic king, would be someone who would be soaked in Torah, who would know the Hebrew scriptures, who would know it inside out. And here Jesus is in the temple conversing with the scholars, with the teachers. Luke presents the story of a future king. And what's Jesus' response to his parents? Why were you searching for me? Now, let me don't say it. I don't think Jesus was being a smart aleck, but that can come across that way. I'm sure like, if a parent heard that, they'd be like, uh, what am I going to do now? Like, I can imagine if I was a teenager and I was gone for three days and I said that to my dad, I can guarantee you I'm getting that wooden spoon. Like, that's just, that, that's how it happened in our house. You don't, you don't say it, talk that way to mom and dad. But Jesus' response, I think, demonstrates a reality that his parents had not grappled with yet. Maybe they did not want to let him grow up. They just wanted him to stay boy Jesus. Maybe his parents were hanging on to his future. Maybe they just wanted Jesus just to be a normal boy. They didn't want to see, you know, Jesus be the Messiah. They, meant, they probably didn't even understand what the Messiah meant at that time. They were still figuring out, what is this boy? What is he going to do? But Jesus reminds them, I have a different mission. I'm supposed to be in my father's house. Jesus says, didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? These are the first words, this 49 here, 
that Jesus actually speaks. Jesus is aware of his mission, of his calling, of his identity. He knows he's the Messiah. He knows he's God's son. Mary may be his mother, but those maternal ties have to give way to the mission and call of Jesus. She has to let go. They have to let go. Worship team, you can come up. The last point is Luke wants us to know Jesus is fully human. This passage we're looking at is actually bracketed uh, by an interesting verse. Luke 2, 51 to 52. Then he went down to them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. I know all the parents said amen to that, that he was obedient to them. But, uh, but his mother Mary kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and with the people. Now, if you look before Luke 2, Luke 2, 40, before this passage, it says, the boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Luke is showing us that Jesus is human. He had to grow up like all of us. He increased in wisdom and stature. Jesus is not a finished product out of the womb. He didn't just pop out of the womb and he knew everything. In churches, we often stress the deity of Jesus, which I fully believe he is fully God. But sometimes we can talk, forget to talk about his fully humanness. In a commentary from Nicholas Perrin, he writes, the two stories underscore the fact that the full-grown Jesus did not suddenly materialize out of thin air as if by magic. Rather, he developed just as any human being would develop. Jesus came to empathize with humanity precisely as he experienced humanity, namely, in and through the limitations imposed by human finitude and the natural process of maturation. Though the Spirit was fully on Jesus, this fact did not eliminate his need for personal development. And if Jesus' maturation as a human necessitated his growing in wisdom and stature, the same principle surely applies to the gospel readers. Jesus is fully human just like us. Jesus had to grow up. He had to mature in wisdom and stature. He had to become strong. Sometimes you have this belief, you know, I'll just come to Jesus and everything will be figured out. I'll get filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's just like, bang, everything's fixed. I'm good. I don't think that's the case. The Gospels present this hard reality of Jesus himself having to grow in wisdom and stature. Jesus knows what it is to be human, what it is to struggle, what it is to grow. And Jesus invites us to follow him as a human and as God. It's easy for me to forget that Jesus understands my humanity. If someone were to ask me, you know, like, Stephen, theologically, do you think Jesus was a human? I would say, like, of course he's a human. But we sometimes don't think about that. We just think about the Godhead aspect, which is true, but he's also fully human. He understands our struggle. I remember two years ago, I was walking home in the winter, and it was February, it was a cold night, and I was out praying as I was dealing with loss, as I was going through my divorce, and, and just going through the process of loss, and just feeling betrayed. And, and I remember Jesus, I felt like he answered me, and said, like, I know what loss and betrayal feels like. Jesus, our King, knows what it is like to be human. He knows what it's like to grow, to go through pain and difficulty. We serve a King who's both fully human and fully divine. Jesus knows what it is to be one of us. He entered our humanity. He entered our experience fully. And Luke highlights this growth and maturity in Jesus and that he is the chosen one, the Messiah, the King. And he invites us to follow him. He invites us to follow him, someone who's gone through pain and suffering. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. 
I thank you for the goodness and how you're working in and amongst us, Lord. Jesus, sometimes you seem so far away, Lord. Sometimes it's hard to know where you are or to see you, Lord, or to hear you, Lord. But you are here in and amongst your church. I pray for those who are struggling, Father, and feel far away from you, Jesus. When they read the Gospel of Luke, Lord, they they see a Jesus on a page, but they don't see Jesus with them. Lord, I pray that you would meet them in their humanity as you became human to be amongst us. You, You, God, came to be with us. We thank you for your goodness. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.